Good morning. How are we this morning? All right? We're good? All right. I'm, uh, if you're new this morning, we do want to extend a, a welcome to you. We're, we're grateful that you came this morning. I, uh, my name is Tri. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, have the privilege of, uh, of talking this morning to us uh, about the book of Ephesians, particularly Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Um, as we... Uh, have something beeping in the background. Um, that's, uh, that's just one of those things. Um, you know, Ephesians uh, is such an amazing book. It, it basically, you know, it begins, it just gives us a seamless walk uh, through the power and the glory of God, uh, his salvation to us, and the formation and the purpose of the church. Um, I want to read a little bit out of chapter one. I can't really even get into two without diving back into one, and I think that that's probably how this will go, is there's just uh, some back and forth uh, kind of things that are going to go on. But I want to remind you that, that Paul's prayer was this, uh, in chapter one, this amazing uh, kind of poem that, that Paul writes about God and about who we are in him and what we have in him. And it says this, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness to his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Um, and so we have just this great kind of uh, prayer that Paul ends chapter one with talking about the greatness and the magnitude of God. Am I really loud out there or just up here? Is it just the, the, the monitors? Is it really loud to you guys? Okay, because it's, it's just loud to me. What's that? Okay, well, that's all right. I'll just start. It sounds like I'm yelling and I'll get to that here in a minute. Spitting, probably, too. Slapping Bibles and stuff. I just wanted to call this, but God, because that is the most amazing statement, I think, of this chapter right here. Um, in chapter one, we're reminded that we are blessed with every spiritual gift. We have been chosen. We are holy and blameless. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. He has lavished the riches of grace upon us, and he has made known the mystery of his will in Christ he has given us inheritance, and we are sealed by the Spirit. And I think that the, the, the overriding uh, theme of this book is that Jesus has come to unite all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth, and he did it all to the praise of his glory. So chapter two, as we, as we delve into chapter two, man, that thing is a trigger, hair trigger on it. It starts out this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. Not you were pretty good, not you were 
okay, not you had done most things right, but a few things you had messed up on. Um, not, you know, you, you'd helped a lot of old ladies across the street, but you, you, you kind of did a couple of things. No, you were dead, dead, over, done. The, the, the Greek word is the idea of a corpse. You were absolutely a corpse without hope, without anything um, in this world, without any ability to, by our own merit, appease God, please God, or have anything that we could ever offer to God. We were absolutely and completely dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And so the things that we had purposely gone against God, the things that we had done have left us dead. As Romans 6.23, it says this. It says that the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? Is a wage a gift? It's pay, right? It's what we've earned, right? And so it's very clear here that, that Romans 6.23 is gonna tell us that the wage is what we have earned, what we have worked for, what we have coming to us because of our work, because of our labors, because of what we've done, is actually death. Maybe we need a new definition of life or death because I think that sometimes we sit here and we're like, what? I mean, come on, I wasn't really dead, right? I mean, I've been alive. I was alive, I was doing this, I was, I was helping people, I was doing these things. Um, but but maybe, maybe our view of life and death is skewed. Maybe ours exists on a temporal plane and maybe God's exists on an eternal plane. What he identifies as life isn't gonna relate or, or live in this temporal place that we are living now, but on an eternal plane. Real life, I think according to God, is eternal life, right? It's not the temporal life that we tend to think about being alive in. Remember, if we look back into Genesis chapter two, we're gonna see this just amazing thing about this God who made us, who created us. I don't know what your conception of God is in your mind, but, the, but the, in Genesis 2, it says that he took and he formed us out of the dust, that, that basically like a potter, he, he made you individually, he made you uniquely you, that he, he formed you that he knew you before he formed you. He knew everything about you and he gave you incredibly unique markers that mark you as an individual and set you apart from any other human being on earth. You know you have a cornea that's different than anybody else that ever has been or ever will be. You have fingerprints that identify you uniquely. You have a, you have a genome, a human genome in you. Your DNA strands and the story of you has never, ever been written before, nor will it be written again. And it says that God formed us in Genesis 2. It says that he took man and out of the dust he formed him. And then it says he, he breathed life into us, and man became a living being, a nefesh, a soul, basically. And, and, and so, so God, and then re, does anybody remember what, what, what's the, what was the command? He, he made God alive, and then he, he made man alive, and then God said, don't do this one thing or you will what? You will die, right? Don't eat of the fruit of that tree or you will die. You will cease to be the living being that I have created you to be. Now, if we study further in the Bible, we'll see that Adam went on to live to be 930 years old, however that worked for them back then. But the point being 
is this, is that he died even though physically he was walking the earth. For a point in time, he was dead. And then we begin here, and it's this picture of that Jesus is bringing all things back. He is uniting all things in the world back to himself. He's creating his church. He's building his church. He's reaching out. He is redeeming. And he is bringing us from a place of being dead to back to being alive by his definition, not by ours. And so even though we may walk this world physically, we can still walk this world being completely and totally spiritually blind and spiritually dead. It says that we walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It, 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 it's a big reminder of, of where we came from. It, it's, a, it, it, it's a place where we have to get this right understanding of who we really are. You see, until we understand who we really are and where we've come from, we won't be open to the healing that God has in our lives. Because real healing only happens in a place of reality. God will not deal with us in a place of denial. If you live in denial, if, if we aren't being real about who we are and what we've done and, 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 and the reality of our lives, then we won't be really equipped to extend grace and love and mercy and forgiveness to others because what we will tend to do on a human level is make a hierarchy of who we're above and who is below us. And we do that. We do that on all kinds of levels. Human beings do this. And, and what we're going to see is that Jesus has come to tear all of that down to get rid of that, to, to obliterate these ethnic, these, these, uh, uh, these, these dividing lines that, that have divided humanity for so long and to bring them all into one thing under him. So this is where we've all come from. See, the reality of me is this. I have a perception of who I see myself to be. Trey's a pretty good guy. He's a good guy, you know? He really wants to help people, wants to do the right thing, wants to do some good things. I basically live my life uh, in a manner where most people, obviously not everybody's gonna agree with that, but when I really look in my past, when I look at the reality of who I am, when I really look at the reality of, 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 of how I've been, it, it's like there's this shadow figure that's in my past. There's this shadow figure that, that when I really look at him, I'm like, gosh, what is that guy up to? And then I recognize that guy's actually me. That the reality of me is that my life, I have not lived up to the perception of who I see myself to be. The reality of my life is I've hurt people. The reality of my life is I've done the wrong things. The reality of my life is that I followed the course of this world, that I subjected myself to the power of the prince of, uh, of the powers of the air, and that I lived according to my own belief system, according to my own lust, according to the things that try wanted. I lived in absolute defiance of God and his plans for my life. And so this is the real quandary is that even if we live our lives as a good person, what the Bible tells us is that you can live your life for, as a good person and, and you can do basically some good things but if they're not in alignment with what God has for you, if it's not in alignment with God's will for your life, those good things can be lived just selfishly out 
trying to accomplish our own plans, creating and building our own kingdom versus building his and being a part of what God is doing on this earth. So we were children of wrath. This is the place that we come from. And then this amazing statement that the whole thing, but God. See, we've got to start to wrap our heads around this. It's all about God. The reality of this thing is it's about him. It's not about us. I want to make it about me. You want to make it about you. But the reality of this is that it is about God. And the answer to this is but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, Jesus is bringing this thing, his original, the original intention, which was relationship and heaven on the front end, was corrupted by sin, moved into this world, into this place where evil exists, where struggle is, and God is now rescuing out of that and breathing life back into people. He's actually restoring us back to a place of spiritual life. And that's what this whole thing is about. And so even when we were dead, you see, this isn't about you. It's not about how good you've been. And it's not about how bad you've been either. The economy that God operates under is an economy of grace. Anybody remember the, the, the definition of grace? Grace is favor that you don't deserve it. It's not based on deserve. The reality of deserve is that you and I don't want to talk about what we deserve. I don't want to talk about that. Let's just take some grace, right? <laughs> because that's the reality of our lives. And so even though we were this, even though we were way out there, even though we were rebels, even though we, we didn't think about God, even though we did our own things, even though we hurt people, God still loved you and I, and is ready to extend grace, his favor to us, even though we don't deserve it. But thankfully, his economy is not based in deserve. It's based in his goodness, right? It's based in his love, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and it made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's watch a little video here about what people think about grace. What is grace? That's a question I haven't really thought of. That's kind of a hard definition to, to give. I know it has something to do with God. I like that French woman that works in my apartment complex named Grace. To me, it's kindness and goodness. A uh, ballerina is graceful or something like that. Grace, basically, I always need to be thankful. I'm not big on definitions, but that's, that's what you do right before you eat. It makes me think of peacefulness. Does that help? It's the way somebody walks. Grace is something that you pick up from family. God is good. God is grace. Where does grace come from? Grace comes from your actions and your deeds. If you let it come to you, it'll, it'll be there. You have to accept yourself, so it really comes from inside. I just think it's something that everybody should have. So I would say originally from God, but through other people. I guess from anybody, you know, anybody that wants to be graceful. I think you can find grace in other people. Inside you, in your mind. I do believe that grace comes from God. I think he's the only person qualified to give grace. You guys see Libby's doppelganger in there? <laughs> Little, uh, yeah. Grace. Grace is this thing that's come. It's it, C.S. Lewis, I think, put it the best. He said, God didn't, Jesus didn't come 
to make bad people good. Sometimes that's what we think. We think, well, he's, he's come to make bad people good. No, he's come to make dead people alive. This is the thing. This is what Jesus has come to do. And mercy, mercy is something that he has extended us. And remember that mercy is not getting what you deserve, but grace is getting what you don't deserve. So he has given us, he's extended grace and mercy to us. And it says that this grace has saved us. And it says this too, if you've said yes to Jesus, if you're in his God's family, if you've been adopted in, it says that he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The idea immeasurable there means to, to run past, to run beyond, to immeasurably give more and to go the distance more than can even be counted. And it says here that you, if you're in Christ, you are positionally perfect in him. That as a matter of fact, this isn't a will be kind of a thing that right now Jesus has taken, he has sat at the right hand of the Father, he holds the place of honor and victory, all things have been subjected to him, he is the head of all things and all things have been put under his feet, he is victorious in that and if you are in Christ, that's exactly where you sit too. The proclamation over your life is that you are holy, that you are blameless, that you are beyond reproach. You see, it's important that we know who we are and where we sit because who you see yourself to be will be exactly how you treat yourself. You see what I'm saying? Does it make sense? If you think you're not worthy, if you think you're, you, you, you just deserve bad or bad treatment or, or, or somehow you've just done these things, you see, you won't live out your life in the way that God. See, Jesus has not called you and I to suffer. That would be taking his role. His role is that of the sufferer. Sometimes we, we live our lives thinking, if I could just suffer enough in this. You know, I've done wrong, I've hurt these people, and, and now if I could just make myself suffer long enough, it would somehow almost seem to pay the penalty, but it never will, because you can't. It's only him, it's only God that can pay the penalty for sin, and he's come, and he's, he's, he's been the sufferer on our behalf that we might be the victor in him, that we might be seated with him at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, even this very minute. Goes on to say that for grace, you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the gospel, the good news right? The gospel declaration was one that basically said there is a king that's come and this king has taken over this territory and his kingdom and he's set his kingdom out. And as a result of what he's done, you are going to benefit in your life. That's what a gospel message was. So if a new king came in, he would send out a gospel. But the gospel of Jesus is this. It says that is that you couldn't do it. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't deserve it. You couldn't pay for it. You couldn't work hard enough. You couldn't help enough old ladies across the street. You couldn't do anything to merit God's favor, but you can have it. But you can have it. You can have it as a gift. And it's the only way that it's received is just simply as gift. See, it's a gift that's, that's immeasurably beyond our ability to pay for it. We could never pay for it, but we can always 
receive it. So it says this, that grace is the, is the means by which we've been saved. His grace, his favor that we don't deserve has, is the means, and, and the avenue that that happens is through faith. That when we take the faith that God has given us and we invest it into Jesus, it says that his grace basically then comes and covers our sin, and it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just cover. Grace isn't something that is just a covering. Grace is empowerment. Grace becomes power that, that then basically we begin to live our lives in a different way. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes in, that we're sealed with the Spirit, that we're empowered, that, that truth is basically um, begins to be taught and known to us, and we are empowered to live our lives in a manner different from how we have in the past, different from the way that the world lives, different from the economies of the world. You see, if you try to live your life in a performance-based economy, you'll only be as good as your last work, right? Your last success, that'll define you successfully. Your last failure will now make you a failure. You'll go from hero to zero in 0 0.02 seconds or less. It's not this economy. So it's not by works, it's by faith. You see, everybody lives by faith. Isn't this right? Do you, do you believe that or not? Everybody has faith. We, we kind of tend to, to call ourselves people of faith. This is people of faith. God's people, we're, we're people of faith. Everybody's a person of faith. Even the atheist has a faith system, a belief system that he has invested his faith into. Now, his belief system says there is no God, but nonetheless, he takes the faith that God has given him. Book of Romans tells us that, that God gives each man a measure of faith. And then we are to invest that faith into something. And so even the atheist would invest his belief into a system that says there is no God. But when we invest that faith that God gave us into the reality that Jesus lived, walked this earth, if we believe that he was God himself that came down to heaven to pay the penalty for sin and that he stands on our behalf, that he is on the cross on our behalf paying the penalty for that, and if we simply ask, we can receive that gift. See, and again, Paul just does such a great job of just telling us, this is a gift. You see, if, you were, if I were a judge and, and, and we had went through a whole court case, right? It's kind of like this. You're just, you, the, the charges are stacked up greatly against you. There, there, there's no real hope. It, doesn't, it looks really bad for you, right? And, and um, you're thinking, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? And, and then all of a sudden, in the back of the courtroom, they say, all rise, and you, you stand up and you look, and the judge is your best friend's dad. And you're like, yes. It's my best friend's dad. And you're like, permission to approach the bench, right? And so, so he's like, get up, come on up here, you know? And you're like, hey, what's, what's up? What's happening? How you doing? It's like, well, doing good. We're, we're doing well. What's going on with you? Look at this. You got this, you got this whole list of charges here. I mean, what do you got what do you, what's going on? And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, hey, you think you could like sweep that under the carpet and maybe I could come over for dinner tonight. We'll catch up, we'll hang out, we'll, we'll, we'll get right with, you know, we'll just visit, right? And the judge is like, you know I love you, right? You, you were over at the house all the time. You and my, uh, you know, you and my daughter or son, we, you, you went on vacations with us. You pl we played sports together. We had, you know I love you like a son or a daughter, right? But I'm a judge. 
And so I have to uphold justice. So the case goes on and, and, and they bring all the evidence against you. And it's obvious that you're guilty. And the judge goes into his chambers and comes back out just a few minutes later, takes the gavel and goes, guilty. And he says, and all analogies break down, but he says something like this, you either have to pay this million dollar fine or you have to spend the rest of your life in prison, separated, dead, away, off over there. And you're like, I don't have any money. So that judge then that loves you pulls his robe off and puts it in the corner. And he reaches into his back pocket and he pulls out his checkbook. And he writes a check. And in your name, pay to the order, he writes your name. And then he puts a million dollars there and he signs it and he, whoosh, he pulls it out. And then he says, here you go. So what would you have to do if I was trying to hand you a check for a million dollars right now, Morgan? Just take it. You just receive it. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it, but you can have it. We are his workmanship. Now, this is the result of salvation. So if you've done that or you, you have the opportunity, I want to tell you, you can do that anytime. Anytime from the heart. It isn't, there, actually, the sinner's prayer isn't in here. The concepts are in here, but, but that whole sinner's prayer thing is, is great. It's fine. I'm not against it. But if you'll just from the heart say, I, I, I need that gift. I, I have a need. And I'd take that gift. Then it says that, that he'll save you, that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then it goes on, the result. Then now we get into some works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? So this is telling us that God has plans and purposes for our lives and that those plans and purposes have been in his mind for eternity past. He's always known you and he's always known exactly what he would have you to do. He's positioned you perfectly into a sphere of influence of people around you and he's given us all opportunity to take this great salvation that we've had, join him in the work that he wants to do in this world and begin to move and to step out into that. As a matter of fact, that word workmanship is a Greek word, poema. It's where we get the word poem from. It's like God is writing a poem with our lives. And he, he says that he wants to, he has this story that he wants to go out into the world. And, and, and these, are, these are the works that God has for each one of us, the ones that he prepared so long ago that we might walk in them. What was broken and useless can now become useful. I can tell you there are parts of my past and my story that I'm not proud of. But I have two options with those things. One option is this, to let it occupy a place of shame in my life. And if I allow it to occupy a place of shame in my life, it'll continue to shame me. It'll continue to drive me into unhealthy things. Or guess what? I can choose to allow God to write a story with that to take the shame and the junk of my life and rewrite it into something useful, something that can be told to somebody else, something that might comfort somebody else, something that somebody else might go, oh my gosh, I wouldn't have guessed that about you. But hey, if God could use it, and he could use it in this redemptive story that he is writing in this world where he is trying to unite all things back to himself, then so be it, Lord. Use my junk. 
that we might accomplish his purposes here on earth. Ephesians 2 and 11 and 12, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, what, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you are... Uh, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus is bringing down these walls. He's bringing down these dividing walls. Remember, James talked about if into your assembly there comes a rich man dressed in fine clothes and wearing a gold ring, and there comes also a poor man in dirty clothes, and you say to the rich man, come and sit over here in a good place, yet to the poor man you say, you stand over there, come sit here at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? You see, God is wanting us to be his tool to bring down these walls, ethnic walls, ethnic barriers. You see, Jews and Gentiles are now brought into one. A husband and wife is brought into one. Where we were separated and alienated, now we're brought back into relationship to God. And this is God's heart and God's plan for the entire world. Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The word abolish means to render inoperative. Jesus has done a new thing. See, it's diversity and unity that is a representation of the very nature and character of God that God is trying to bring back in. The church represents diversity, yet unity. We're unified under one thing, under the cross, right? But we are not, um, and we're unified in that, in our diversity, but our unity is not uniformity because we're a body. Some are feet, some are hands, some are heads, and we're supposed to walk through this world in a manner that brings him glory and honor, each using the talents and the gifts that he's given for his benefit, for his kingdom, for his purposes. You were outside and you were brought in. My big question is, who are you bringing in? Who from the outside are you bringing into this? God is offering this great deal. He's offered it to you. And if you have experienced that, then our job, our responsibility is to be bringing those that are outside of this deal in. You know, God's plan for the redemption of the world is what? The, we're it. What are we? We're the church. And, and we're, the church is people, right? It's not buildings. Do you only invite those who will fit in? Do you only invite those you think will fit in with the rest of us, that work well? Those who maybe aren't much trouble or work or wouldn't require a real commitment? Remember, Jesus has come to unite all things to himself. 
And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is building his church. Question A is, are you a part of it? Have you been brought into the church? Have you been adopted into God's family? Remember, God has no grandchildren, right? We can't ride anybody else's faith coattails into the kingdom. He only has children. The big question is, have you asked him? Have you, have you responded to his call? Have you heard the gospel and said yes? Have you, have you come into relationship with Jesus? You see, on God's end, I believe he said yes. John 3.16 says that, for God so loved the world that he gave his, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have life eternal. And, and so um, God, on his end of this relationship, he said yes. But to have a true and authentic love relationship, which is what God wants to have with you and I, it requires that two would agree, right? Like I said, I can't duct tape Anna in the basement and say she's my loving wife. It just doesn't work like that. For us to have an authentic love relationship, we both had to say yes to one another. God waits on our, on our yes, but he's building his church and he's the cornerstone. He's the thing that every wall and every line is coming off of. The cornerstone is that which is set perfectly and all of the walls and every stone that is set after that is set in accordance to that cornerstone. It's Jesus, he's the cornerstone and he's building his church. Our community, this community, our, our faith community where we gather together, we're part of a bigger picture. We're part of a bigger church. And all of this is to the praise of his glory, right? To the praise of his glory. That's what it's about. It's an amazing opportunity. The first three chapters here deal with, with our own individual responsibilities, uh, the doctrine of, of, of salvation and entrance into the church. Four, five, and six, by the time we hit that, we're gonna be looking at corporately what's the call of the church in this world. And I'm gonna hold this, and this isn't a, this isn't a smack to any of us, it, it applies to all of us, but the church in America needs to wake up. We gotta wake up. We're asleep. We're, 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 we're letting, on our watch, Things are going on. We're not, we're not fulfilling. We're not being the hands and the feet of Jesus in the community around us. We're not being the love that God has called us to be. And, and, and don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that we're not doing some stuff. I'm just saying that as a whole, we're not picking on any of us. We just got to wake up. We've got to recognize that there's temporal, physical life, but there's eternal life. And we want to be investing into the systems of eternal life, into the things that have eternal value, Right? while we have a good time in the temporal, right? But hopefully we hit the eternal, all beat up, bruised up, wore out, because we worked hard for the kingdom. You see, the gospel is the most important message in the world today. And the church has been given the responsibility of getting the gospel out to the rest of the world. So 
chapter two. I'm gonna end with prayer, but as we pray, we wanna bring Curtis up and some family, and, and uh, guys, if you're uh, in leadership, have been in leadership, board members, elders of the church, come up, and then all corporately too. Um, Curtis is headed off to South America here. South America. <laughs> he may end up there, right? Because the army does what it wants to do, right, Curtis? Yeah. But for now, he's actually going to South Korea. And, uh, but we just want to pray him out, huh? And we want to pray over him and pray God's protection over him and just, and just tell and express to our thanks to him. And, and uh, so, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for Curtis. We thank you for his life. We thank you that we've gotten to see him grow up in this church. Lord, we've, we've gotten to see him just changed and transformed, and we just stand before, beside him now saying, wow, what, a, what, what an amazing young man. We're grateful for him, and we pray your protection over him. We pray that you would be with him, Lord, and, and that he, as he uh, just defends our country and, and, and does his part in that whole scheme of things, again, Lord, we ask your protection over him. We pray that you would be with him, Lord, and we pray that you would make him an agent of peace and love, that wherever his feet go, Lord, that his feet would be fitted with the gospel of peace as he goes out. And so, uh, Lord, we just thank you for him. We pray for those he'll serve with. We pray for all of uh, our military and those who are in harm's way this day, those who, who give all so that we might experience and live in the freedom that we have this day. It is a picture of who you are, Lord, that you gave yourself on all behalfs for us so that we might have life. And so, Lord, we just pray over that. We pray peace over our world, Lord. We pray even that, that, that just military and, and the presence of those things, would, would that you'd come quickly, Lord, and that you'd abolish those things. But for today, um, living in some of the, the struggles that we live in, Lord, we ask protection over our soldiers. We pray salvation for those who are far from you, those who don't know you. And we pray also, too, Lord, for our enemies, because you've called us to be a people who pray for our enemies, Lord. We pray that you would meet their needs, that, Lord, that you would bless them, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would reveal yourself to them, Lord, that you would unite all things, Lord, to yourself in this world, that you would bring that unity that you desire to bring. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.